0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries, with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. We're going through the book of Romans. uh, It's my task. Happy to do it. And we have four children who are grown, and trying to use my thing here and it wants to get me online and everything, but that's okay. Four children who are grown and married, walking with the Lord, and we have 11 grandchildren, so we stay busy. We're enjoying the cool weather here, didn't expect so much rain. At home, there's a very bad heat wave right now, so we're not missing that at all. And maybe we'll say a few other personal things as we go along, but... We want to dive into the book of Romans, a book that has made a great change in not only history and Bible study, but in many people's lives. St. Augustine, way back in the fourth century, was, as a young man, known to live a very promiscuous life. But one day he was sitting and talking to his friend. He had visited his mother. He was sitting and talking to his friend who was a believer and had the scripture with him, probably as a scroll. And as they sat in the garden, they heard from over the wall a little voice of a child playing a game. And the line kept coming, take up and read, take up and read. And St. Augustine took that as a sign from God, and he grabbed his friend's scroll and he opened it to Romans 13:14, I believe clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lusts of it. And he was immediately convicted of his sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ evidently and changed his life. And St. Augustine has developed so much as what our theology today is based on. Don't agree with everything that he came out with, but, but he definitely started something there for Christianity. In fact, later... It was Martin Luther who studied the book of Romans as, you know, he was a Catholic monk and he was scared into being a Catholic monk. He was riding his horse or donkey, whatever, one day and almost hit by lightning, was knocked off his horse and he he said, Saint Anne, I will become a monk. And he did. But he served a God fearfully, afraid that God would at any moment smash him and crush him for not obeying the rituals correctly or serving the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist correctly. And he was teaching through Romans and studying it, and he came to chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and that the righteous shall live by faith. And it dawned on him that he had not been coming to God through faith, but through rituals and works and repentance or works of penance. And it was a turning point for him and you know the rest of the story because you're here today as Protestants, probably. And so history turned on the Book of Romans and Martin Luther's interpretation of it. In fact, later in the early 1700s, John Wesley, an, English, an Englishman who had formed a holy club at Oxford with George Whitfield and others, even went to the United States, to the state of Georgia, to where there were a lot of criminals at that time, to convert them and on his way back he didn't have much success on his way back he was with the Monrovians who were very devout believers and on the ship during a great storm he saw their faith and and he knew that he lacked something in his life and so I think it was 1738 he was walking down a street uh, called Aldersgate and he stopped in on a Bible study and in that Bible study they were reading the, the leader was reading the introduction to the book of Romans written by Martin Luther. And John Wesley, in his famous words, says he felt his heart strangely warmed and that changed his life. And he began to preach righteousness through faith as his gospel. And it started this great awakening. And George Whitfield came from a little different theological perspective, but they, and together the great awakening spread throughout America and throughout Western Europe. So you see, the Book of Romans has the potential to change not just history, but maybe even our lives too when we grasp its message. But I have to admit the Book of Romans is one I came to reluctantly as a new believer at the age of 19. I kind of ignored it because it was so theological. It threatened me. I didn't understand it. It's much easier to understand the stories of Jesus and the Gospels, right? You come to, theolo- they come to the theology of Romans and it talks about righteousness and propitiation and being bat- buried with Christ and, and all this, and I, I couldn't make heads or tails of it, so we just le- I left it, but eventually went to Bible school and had some good teachers that kind of helped me sort those things out. So I hope that you are enriched and even changed by our study of the book of Romans together. Now, I have a very simple outline for the book that... Um, I've put together and it makes it kind of easy to think your way through the book because one thing you'll notice about Romans is that it has a forward motion. The book goes forward from sin all the way to service. So we have sin and grace and sin and grace and salvation, grace and sanctification, grace and security, grace and our selection, grace and our service. Even though there are six parts, I'm going to try to communicate that in five messages. And I've included the word grace because Romans is really a book about grace. It uses the word 28 times. That's more times than any other book in the New Testament. And you're going to see how grace makes such a great impact from the book of Romans. The introduction to Romans, as if we had to identify a key or theme verse, would be 16 we read in the introduction, we don't have time for, of course, everything here, but we read in the introduction that Paul intends to visit the Roman church again. He probably has written this from uh, Corinth on his way to deliver a gift to Jerusalem, and he talks about visiting them in the future. He had been there before, evidently, and he wants to see them again. And, and then he explains a reason why he wants so desperately to go to Rome. He says in verse 16, well, actually in verse 15, so as much as is in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Not that they haven't heard the gospel, but we'll find that the word gospel means more than just the saving gospel, it means the gospel in all of its ramifications. And then in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. The Greek would mean Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Since that was probably the key or theme verse for the book, let's just slow down and unpack it a little bit. He says that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I think what Paul has in mind is marching right into the capital of the world at that time, Rome, and standing before Roman leaders, and he's not ashamed to preach this gospel to the most powerful and important people in the world. He's willing to go to the seat of the government in Wellington or Washington, D.C. or whatever because he has the message, he has the cure for the human race and the human problem. In fact, he's making an understatement, probably using Jewish rhetoric. He says, I'm not ashamed, but what he's really saying is, I'm proud of the gospel. I know the power of the gospel. And so he's using some rhetoric there. For it's the power of God. That word power, we get our English word um, dynamite from it, so a lot of people like to equate that with it. But I think what he's talking about is not an explosive power of the gospel, but the transforming power of the gospel. That transforming power you will run into in chapter six, seven, eight, especially, where he talks about our uh, sanctification by grace. So it's the transforming power of God to salvation. Now, interesting thing about the word salvation there is we often use it in the sense of, you know, I was saved when I was 19 years old. Or let's go share the gospel and pray that so-and-so gets saved. But like the word gospel, which means good news in, in general, it can be referred to someone's initial salvation, but also all the other benefits that one enjoys in salvation. So also the word salvation can refer to initial salvation, but also the ongoing salvation that we have. Um, so some of these words are very important. For example, let me I think I have something on uh, the word salvation here. There's different meanings in the Greek language from the verb sozo or the noun soteria, it can mean deliver. Basically this meaning of salvation is deliver deliver from something undesirable. It can mean deliver from sickness. It can mean deliver from physical death. There's some verses you can look up later. Deliverance from enemies. It's deliverance from political bondage or national danger. Deliverance from harm, the harm of false teaching. Deliverance from the wrath of the tribulation period. So those are some of the meanings that can be used for the the word saved. He uses it in different ways like that in the book of Romans. When he uses it in verse 16, he doesn't define it, but I think he's using it in the comprehensive senses. The gospel saves us not just from the penalty of sin once and for all, but it goes on to save us every day from the power of sin. And ultimately, one day will save us from the very presence of sin. Because look how he uses it in chapter 5 we will be saved. You see, he uses it in the future sense. And um, in chapter six, he talks about Israel and their future will be saved. And in chapter 13, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So you see, there's a future sense to our salvation as well. God's not finished with us yet. He hasn't wrapped up the package totally. We still have a future. If we were to maybe put it this way, We are saved at justification, and we'll talk about that word. It means to be declared righteous before God. When we are justified, we are saved from the penalty of sin. It's a judicial word, as if a judge is pronouncing us innocent. That happened to me at age 19, happened in a one-time instantaneous event. I was justified at the age of 19 when I believed in Christ as my savior. Saved from the penalty of sin forever. But, you know what? I'm being saved right now. I'm being saved from the power of sin. If you're a believer, you can be saved right now from the power of sin in the present. And it is often used that way in the Bible. We usually refer to that as our sanctification or progressive sanctification because we're constantly overpowering sin by the power of the Spirit in us. So, there's a present aspect. There's a future aspect we call glorification, where we are saved from the very presence of sin. When we're in Christ's presence or in the kingdom of God or in heaven, there's no sin around. We're saved from the very presence of sin. So you with me now? Justification, I'm saved from the penalty of sin once and for all. Sanctification, I'm being saved today from the power of sin. Glorification. I will be saved from the very presence of sin. Past, present, future. All of that, I think, is what Paul has in mind when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. It does the whole job. Okay, so powerful words, powerful concept there. And uh, we'll learn more about those words. Uh, the word salvation we've talked about. And to all who believe, the word believe means to be convinced of something, persuaded of something. There's some misunderstanding, I think, today about this word, and it's used in the sense of make a commitment or make a promise or obedience. But those are different ideas. To be convinced of something is true is is to be persuaded that it's true and trustworthy. When you entered the room, you saw a chair you believed or were convinced or persuaded it would hold your weight you sat down in the chair it's as simple as that and we've tried to make it complicated you didn't commit yourself or make promises to or obey the chair you just trusted it trust is an okay synonym in my opinion and then he talks about righteousness friend the righteousness of god is revealed from faith to faith righteousness refers to God's perfect standard, his standard of perfection. And only God meets that standard of perfection. So that becomes a very important word in the book of Romans as well. Now, what about verse 17? Friend, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. I think what he has in mind here is that God's righteousness first needs to be uh, introduced to us in our justification. Our initial faith in Christ as Savior, we are, let's go this way, we are saved in the past, we are justified. But then we grow in righteousness to become like what God has declared us to be. You see, legally, we're righteous in His sight. Now, what the Christian life is all about is living up to what He's already said we are. And so from faith to faith, initial faith, to the faith to believe God for a practical righteousness, an everyday righteousness. Uh, I think that's what the idea of faith, the faith is. And he quotes Habakkuk uh, 2.4, for the just shall live by faith. So the idea here is that not just we're saved by faith, but we also are to live by faith. And so when we go through the book of Romans, we will... Advance from justification into sanctification, and how a person is to live by faith. Now, that's what I would call the introduction to the book. We begin a section in chapter 8, 118, which will run to chapter 3, verse 20. And we're going to have to talk about an unpleasant subject, but the word sin. And it will answer the question how low must grace reach in this section. So let's talk about grace and our sin. We'll try to get you out of sin as quickly as possible in the next session but we're just gonna have to stay there for a while. Okay, some of you say, whoopee. (laughs) Hope not. So he begins this section in verse 18 with these words, for the wrath of the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, good Bible students observe the smallest things, and what you notice here is that he says, the wrath of God is being revealed. What tense is that? It's the present tense. The wrath of God is being revealed. It's something I believe is going on in the world today. It's God's nature to hate sin, it's God's nature to be angry about sin. He's, he's angry about any sin in any person, anywhere. All ungodliness and the wickedness of men. And it is being demonstrated today, and he's going to show us how it's being demonstrated today. But he says it is... Uh, he begins to describe what I, what I call the spiritual history of mankind. He takes us through the spiritual history of... Of mankind. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. There's a, there's a witness in us, an internal witness, but also external evidence, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They are without excuse. God has put into his creation and into our inner witness, our hearts, an internal testimony, an external witness to the fact that there is a God, there is a creator, and we see him all around us. We look at a plant and we see its design. We look at the seasons and the stars and we see there's a pattern. We look at, uh, uh, I don't because I'm not a scientist, but a DNA a chain of dna or a molecule or a single cell and we see it amazing in its complexity the human eyeball is an example he talks about god displaying his power throughout creation the power of the power of a tsunami or an earthquake or of a volcano of the or of the oceans themselves everywhere around us god displays his power but he also displays his design and his beauty and his interest, intricacy and his intimacy, like a mother bird feeding its baby birds. There's just too much God around us to not believe in him. I don't see how atheists have enough faith to be atheists, frankly. I don't believe in atheists. You know, the scriptures say that God has said, the the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It doesn't say the fool believes in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said, it's like he's trying to convince himself that there is no God. But the evidence is so strong that Paul concludes that they are without excuse. No one has an excuse not to acknowledge and give God glory and thanks. No one. Now, some theologies are correct that God has blinded some or Uh, determined some would would never know him and would go to hell. If God has that determining power, then they would have an excuse. They would say, well, I can't believe. I can't believe because God has predetermined that I would not believe. But this kind of argues against that, doesn't it? It really tells us that each person has a responsibility to acknowledge God in creation and in his witness to us. So they're without excuse because, verse 21, although they knew God, there's this innate internal witness. They really know there's a God. That's why I don't believe in atheists. Though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful and became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So instead of giving God glory, they instead turned to the animals and worshiped them. And we'll get to that and rocks and and inanimate things or uh, making God in their own image instead of worshiping as He is. And so they don't give Him the proper glory or magnificence and credit that He deserves, and nor are they thankful. And, you know, that's one of the steps, I think, away from God is when we refuse to give thanks because when you give thanks, you have to recognize you're thanking somebody for some blessing. Uh, I've heard people say, thanks to the universe. What does that mean? You know, you hear TV stars and celebrities will say that all the time. Oh, I thank the universe. Who made the universe is the obvious question. We have a holiday in America called Thanksgiving. It was created by the early settlers when they gave thanks for making it through the first winter in America. And it was later declared a holiday, Thanksgiving. We celebrate in November. And I always like to remind people, who are you thanking? You know, the whole country is saying thankful, are thankful, but... A lot of them don't know who they're thanking. And they became futile in their thoughts. So when we turn away from God and we walk in darkness and in shadows, it darkens our minds and the human mind becomes dark and, and the heart, which is intimately connected to the mind, sometimes used interchangeably as the inner person, is darkened also. And so professing to be wise, they became fools. You know, there's so much foolishness going around our country now, uh, I can pick on our country all day long. Uh, we just appointed a Supreme Court Justice and she was asked, what is the woman? And she said, I don't know, I'm not a biologist. I could ask uh, my five-year-old grandson and he'd tell you immediately. But this comes from academia. These foolish ideas come from academia. And I could go on and on with these foolish worldly philosophies that we've so much of culture has adopted. And those who are supposed to be so wise and smart and are teaching our children are foolish, it says. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So instead of acknowledging God for who he is, mankind turned and made his own images and then worshiped also animals and all kinds of other creatures. And that's why God is angry about sin. There's an eternal aspect to his anger in which he, people are separated from him forever, but there's a temporal aspect too that's being poured out on the world today and even on Christians who choose to sin, I believe. So, we've been going through this list here. They suppress the truth and the history of mankind, refuse to give God the glory, become unthankful, practice idolatry, and that goes on, we'll see, to lead into gross sexual immorality and just a total ignorance or ignorance or ignoring of God. But I've been to many different cultures. I've preached in Africa and India, Southeast Asia, and many places. This particular picture is uh, of an Indian woman, and she is pouring the milk of a holy cow that's standing over here out of the picture. She's pouring the milk of this holy cow on statues of snakes in worship to these snakes. It's kind of shocking until you see it. They worship the rats there. Some cities and villages and provinces worship a monkey god. He looks like a man, except for his head is a monkey. Or Ganesh, the man one who looks like a man but has the head of an elephant. And many arms, you've probably seen that one. This is in Myanmar in southwest, Southeast Asia. And here, this man is pouring water in uh, homage to the rat. Um, Depending on the day of the week that you were born, you go to different stations and so forth. But it's a real thing in other parts of the world. We went to the monkey temple in Myanmar. Everything's monkeys and monkeys are running around all over the place. And uh, that's built for them. And in worship of them, man has changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. We have to be careful about how we think of God, don't we? Lest we change the glorious God into something of our own imagination. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, Every thought we think about God borders on heresy. Let that sink in a little bit because none of us, no two of us think of God exactly the same way, right? And none of us thinks exactly correctly about who he is because, you know, in my opinion, God is incomprehensible. Well, let's move on verse 24. Now, God has a response to these things, you see. And we're going to read three statements of judgment because man has chosen to go down this path. God has then turned him over to his sin. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up, the human race, gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. It's interesting how it puts it with, in the, even in the Greek language. The article is there, the lie, not a lie. And I think the lie is the fact that we can make God in our image. Human race has exchanged the truth about God for the lie that God can be made into some image that we create and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Paul comes up for a little gulp of holy air there, I think, when he says, blessed forever, amen. We have to do that when we talk about sin, it seems. For this reason, a second time, it says, God gave them up, this time to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due." Of course this is speaking about uh, unnatural sex and the choices that many people have made to practice it that way, women with women, men with men, it calls it unnatural here. and. and yet the world celebrates it. I think we're still in the middle of our pride month in America, where the president of the United States put between two American flags, the rainbow flag. It's just a big mess in America right now. And uh, I'll pick on my own country. But it's obvious what Paul thinks about should be natural as opposed to what is unnatural. And is, Yet that is the history of the human race, especially in Corinth was known for this kind of thing. But also the Roman emperors practiced pederasty or child sex and um, homosexual sex with young men and boy servants. and uh, It was just a known thing in the world at that time. And Corinth was especially an immoral place being a, 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 a seaport uh, in, on that isthmus was accessed from both sides and uh, it was a sailor town, let's put it that way. And sailors who are out at sea for a long time kind of cut loose when they get back, you know so verse 28 and even as they did not like to retain god in their knowledge god gave them over there's the third one to a debased mind the mind is just totally corrupted to do those things which are not fitting a depraved mind and so now man instead of using his mind for good can create all kinds of evil if you don't believe me get on the internet something that could be so good and put to such good use has become also so corrupt and so wicked and unimaginably evil scares me to think of where artificial intelligence will take us maybe artificial intelligence will be (laughs) smarter than actual intelligence I don't know but this downward slide then has to, co- totally corrupts the mind. And then he goes into this long grocery list of sins that describe the human condition. And I, I'll speed through it. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. You know, you start thinking about all these gross sins and then he includes whisperers or gossipers or those who, pss, 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 did you hear about it? Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, none of us are that. Boasters, inventors of evil things. And if that doesn't cover it, disobedience to parents. Now you know you're guilty. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who do them. So in this long list, laundry list of sin, you have things that are what we would, we would call gross sins or obviously evil, but also the more subtle things like whispering, gossiping, uh, mal- just being malicious or covetous, and even disobedient to parents. In other words, the human race is guilty of being guilty of all kinds of sin, and they know that they deserve death. And what does he mean by that? Death can be used in a lot of different ways in the scriptures. And I would define death as separation. Now we usually think of death as cessation. Somebody dies, they cease to exist, but do they really? No, their soul separates from their body, but they don't cease to exist. When we die spiritually, when Adam died spiritually in Genesis 3, did he cease to exist? No, but he was dead in sin, meaning that he was separated from God. And so even the Christian can experience death in the fact that we are separated from God, not in position, but in our fellowship with God. And we'll talk about that later in chapter 6. So the principle he's saying is that Choices of sin separate us from God in some way and make us worthy or deserving that separation of death. Now, we'll breeze through chapters two, chapter 2 because in chapter 2, he, he addresses those who think that they're better than others. Let's call them the moralist. He could be address- addressing the Gentiles in Rome and calls them the moralists. Who uh, He calls them inexcusable in chapter 2 because whoever you are who judge and whatever you judge another, you condemn yourselves for you practice the same things. So after giving this laundry list of sins, he says, you may not be doing all of them, but you do some of them and you may judge the people that do those, but really you do the same thing. If not outwardly, certainly inwardly, because Jesus said, um, you know, you shall not commit adultery. Well, that's an outward sin. But he said, I say to you, if a man lusts in his mind or in his heart after a woman, he's committed adultery in his heart. That's the inward thing, you see? So even if somebody can boast, oh, I've never committed adultery, Jesus says, well, let me look at your thoughts. Or Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you, whoever judges his brother without a cause is guilty of judgment. So you've never murdered anybody, but have you ever mentally murdered someone? You see? So the moralist is thinking he's good because he may not do the outward things, but yet he's guilty of those things. And he goes on through verse 16, condemning the moralist who should know better because he has the law of God written in his heart. He even says to them in uh, several places, like verse 7, uh, when he talks about God's judgment, verse 6, "...who will render each one according to his deeds. God is fair. He gives us what we deserve." In verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for honor, glory, and immortality. You see what he's saying here? He's saying God is so fair that if someone continues to do the right things, they deserve eternal life. And he says in verse 13, for the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God. Not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. He's saying that whoever keeps the law perfectly can be justified in God's sight. Now, the only problem with those two statements that he's making here is that no one lives a perfect life. No one keeps the law perfectly. And that's what he ends up saying in chapter 3. There's none good, not one. No one can be justified by the law. But he's simply making the principle here that God is fair. God's judgment is according to truth and facts. Truth is what corresponds to reality. And so God is a fair judge. If you live a perfect life, He'll give you heaven. He'll give you eternal life. You you keep every law perfectly and He'll declare you not guilty. But He goes on in chapter 3 to say that just ain't happening, so to speak. We'll try to get there. So In verse 17, he begins to address his Jewish brethren by saying that you call yourself a Jew and you have the law, that's good, but uh, you who teach the law, you're breaking the law. Don't you teach yourself? Don't you preach to yourself? You say don't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? The implied answer is yes. And so what he's saying to his Jewish brothers is you're preaching the law that God has given to us, but you're also breaking the law. So what, he, what he's done is he's now condemned the whole human race, Gentiles and Jews, because that's the whole human race. Everyone in the world is either Gentile or Jew, or maybe a combination of both, but you fall in those categories. And so he goes on to say a true Jew is one who's been circumcised in the heart, not just born of Jewish stock or from Abraham. So the self-righteous are sinners, and God is going to judge according to truth and works, and impartiality because he is absolutely fair. That's how he deals with the moralist. And then he goes on to deal with the Jews. And um, it's deserved also because the law can't save them. Circumcision can't save them. That's an outward physical act. Nationality can't save them. And arguments can't save them. He goes into chapter 3. Um, saying that the Jews have many benefits and advantages. Uh, They're saying, does God give up on the Jews? Is he unfair because they've disobeyed him? And he goes on to say, certainly not. And he'll pick up that subject in chapter 9, so we'll wait to answer that question more thoroughly. But the argument is, has God given up the Jews because they've lived a disobedient life in history? And the answer, in short, is no, no. God is still fair, and he's got a plan for the Jews, and he's going to talk about it in chapters 9, 10, and 11. But we want to be sure to see his conclusion in verses 9 through 18, or really to the end of the chapter even, that all are sinners, and no one escapes the wrath of God that is being poured out upon all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. No one escapes God's wrath by keeping the law. It's impossible because none of us keeps the law perfectly. So we're all sinners. There's nothing we can do to earn or deserve God's righteousness. Since this isn't in your notes, I'll just throw this up there and you can do what you want to with it. He's addressing the heathen through creation. The heathen being just the whole human race. Through creation, they've seen God's power in existence, but they've chosen idolatry instead, and because of that, they're condemned. He addresses the moralists, the first half of chapter two. In their conscience, they understand the law of God. He's planted it in their hearts, but because God is perfectly righteous, um, their self-righteousness doesn't stand, and they also are condemned. And then he addresses the Jews in the second part of chapter two, who have the law as a guide, to God's righteousness, but they can't keep the gut, the law. They break it themselves. So they are hypocrites and they too are condemned. So what Paul has done is given us a history, a spiritual history of humankind. And it doesn't look good, friends. It doesn't, just doesn't look good. And when we come to the end of chapter three, he summarizes that for us. And let me go back here and you can just, uh, if you want to do something with that. But In verse 9, he says, what then? Are we, the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Paul's drawing his conclusion now from this argument about sin. There's none righteous, as it is written, he's quoting Old Testament verses, there's none righteous, not one, none who understands, none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside they've together become unprofitable there's none who does good no not one it sounds awfully absolutist in the way he is speaking none righteous no not one no, none seek after God because yet we, we know that some people do seek after God but I would say that's because God is working in their life and prompting them to do that because maybe somebody's praying for them and it says none who do good none, no one does good and you're thinking to yourself, well, I have a neighbor and he's an atheist and, and uh, you know, he visited me in the hospital and mowed my grass while I was in the hospital. and That's a good deed, isn't it? Yes, it is in a relative sense. He did a good thing. But when God uses the word good, he's speaking in an absolute sense. There's none who does good absolutely. So we do good in a relative sense. We can call someone good in a relative sense, but there's no one who's perfectly good. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, and he said, good good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. You see, the young man was just calling him good as in re, being respectful. And maybe he thought he was just being relative. But Jesus said, are you calling me God? Because there's only one that's good. And he soon proved that the rich young ruler wasn't good enough to have eternal life because he was covetousness of his riches. Covetous of his riches. So the conclusion goes on. He lays out mankind on the examining table and he opens his throat and he says, Ah, he says to the patient, ah, say ah. The patient goes ah and Paul goes uh <laughs> because their breaths, their tongues have practiced deceit, and the poison of asps is under their tongue, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Well, let's check the other end of the body. He's not doing too good up there. Their feet are swift to shed blood and destruction and misery are in their paths. Everywhere man goes, there's bloodshed. There's war. There's strife. There's tribalism. And the way of peace they have not known. I don't know how to verify this. It's almost impossible to, but someone has said that in the history of mankind, there's only been seven years of peace. I mean, turn on the TV, and you see war in almost every part of the world. And there's no fear of God before their eyes. That ultimately is the problem with mankind. There is no fear of God before our eyes. So the whole human race is condemned as sinful before a holy God. Jews and Gentiles and everyone, there's none good, no, not one. So, how do we escape that kind of situation? How does the grace of God help us? How low must it reach? Well, we're going to see it has to reach as low as the sin of every person. In fact, let's say it this way. It has to reach as low as the lowest, most evil, the blackest sin of every person. You think you've done something today that's beyond the reach of God's grace? Think again because we're going to talk about grace in the next hour. We're going to talk about a grace that reaches every sin. Maybe that would be a good place to stop, leave you in sin. Think about that during a break. But the point is, in verse 19, whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law, so the Jews, that they would have the written law, the Gentiles the law in their heart, that all the world may become guilty before God. The whole world is guilty. therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, God has pronounced the whole world guilty because of his arguments that he's just given to us. And every mouth is stopped. There's no argument. Nobody can say, but, 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 but. No, we're all sinners. We've all disobeyed our parents. Let's just start there, okay? And the law, he says, nobody can be justified by the law because the law was never given to save us. It was given to show us our problem. And yet so many people today think that by keeping the 10 commandments, really there's 613 commandments, by keeping the Ten Commandments, they can climb all the way up to God. And James two ten says, if you break one, you're down. It's like shoots and ladders, the game. You go all the way to the bottom. Did that register shoots and ladders here. Sure. Played it with our grandkids, kids. What is it called? Snakes, Snakes and ladders. Oh, it sounds more exciting. <laughs> one slip and you're down at the bottom. You've blown it. The law was never given to save us. It was given to condemn us so that we could go to one who could save us. I want you to know I love you so much, I came to New Zealand with two metal knees and a metal hip and had to pass through all those security machines. (laughs) Did it for you. But when my knee was hurting, I went to the doctor and he he said, let me take an x-ray. He took an x-ray, he said, yeah, you got terrible arthritis there, bone on bone. We need to get that replaced. I said, okay, press the button and fix it. There's no button on an x-ray machine that fixes the problem, it tells me that I need to get fixed and then I can find an answer or someone who can fix the problem. The law has no button that will fix our problem and make us righteous before God and yet so many people in so many parts of the world in so many religions are trying to earn their way to God by uh, pressing enough buttons, keeping enough rules, and keeping enough laws. But God says, no one, is justified through the law for by the law is the knowledge of sin well I didn't think I was gonna end up fishing but I'll end with a fishing story had a wonderful time fishing the day before yesterday caught on my first fish I caught was the largest trout of my life that's what New Ze- that that's what America looks at New Zealand and says boy it's on my bucket list well I'm here and I'm just living the dream you know so I caught a nice trout and caught 15 more Browns up to about 8 pounds, whatever kgs that is. Had a wonderful time. But I was fishing one time back in my country, and I was having a wonderful time too. Smaller trout, caught a few, and I said, man, there's no one here. I've got the whole stream to myself. I took the couple I caught in that hole, and I walked upstream to the next hole. I passed a tree, and it had a sign on it that said, stream closed for stocking. Oh, my beautiful sunny day turned cloudy, and I was under a big cloud of guilt all of a sudden. Why? Because of the law. The law made the difference. It condemned me. You see? Gave me a knowledge of my sin. What did I do with those two fish? I'll tell you later, maybe. Well, thanks for listening. We'll meet you back in a few minutes. Thank you for listening. For more resources,